Weekly was from the 30s, and I'll never forget it. We had a pickup truck from Arkansas pull up and full of stuff and says, where are those homes to rent for $30 a week? <laughs> we could do it at an average of $28,000 a house where the city or the government tries to do it and it's 60 or $100,000 a house just because it's our business. So I got fired. So uh, then we start out. out Probably there. a huge strategic mistake on their part. At some well, point. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 who knows? So it's kind of a troublemaker, I guess. <laughs> last 30 years, half my time, that's like 30,000 hours. What and they say if you put in 10,000 hours to get good at something. Yes. I guess that means it takes me longer than most to, to figure out how to get <laughs> how to get good at something. He's been a great big brother mentor. Yeah. Is he still a shareholder? Oh yeah. Yeah. Can't get me out of trouble. A lot. <laughs> Going into development. So, you know, I was a brash young guy. And so no, he's still a shareholder. You bet. I'm Rick Walker. I'm sitting down with some of my most captivating friends to discuss topics ranging from politics and business to religion and pop culture. Welcome to Conversations at the Mansion. David Weekly, welcome to Conversations at the Mansion. Thank you, happy to be here. Great to have you. So I wanna kick off today by asking the question, who is David Weekly? Because from the outside, we see the success as a nationwide home builder, we hear of your successes in philanthropy, social, and even your family's, I guess, foyer into the political arena over the last 20 years. But behind the scenes with your family, with your friends, in your faith community, who would they say and who would you say is David Weekly? Uh, fundamentally, probably a Boy Scout. Uh, grew up right here in Houston, out in West Houston, the Memorial area two older brothers, uh, great mom and dad, kind of classic American family, uh, back when that was uh, what, what most families had. And uh, married my high school sweetheart and got into business and have had a great run along the way. I'd like to, I guess I'd say I'm a Christian first and husband second and father third and grandfather and, yeah. and uh, businessman and philanthropist somewhere along the way. And sometimes that order gets messed up. That's right. That's right. So as someone that is the icon of success for a lot of us that look to see what is it, what does a successful life look like? How would you define success? Wow. Um, to me, it's fulfilling our kind of using our God given talents and abilities, uh, to make the world a better place and to focus on the other as opposed to ourselves. You know, so much in our society today, it's, it's all about us. You know, every ad, every everything, it's all about us. And so uh, it, it took, took me a while personally to move from it being all about me to being all about the other, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you had to look back and you look at, you came up through the, the hard 80s here in Texas, especially here in Houston, what were some of the, the difficulties that, that eventually led to that success? Well, I really got started in my own business after getting fired from another home builder. <laughs> and uh, my older brother gave me some advice to go talk to the president and kind of explain what the situations were, and I did. And he ended up thinking I wasn't really a good match for the company, so I got fired. So. Uh, <laughs> Then we start out. Probably there. a huge strategic mistake on their part at some well, point. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 who knows? So it was kind of a troublemaker, I guess. So uh, got started at age 23 and, and uh, started working, and things were going great in the late 70s and early 80s. 
In fact, I was the president of the Home Builders Association, driving a seven series BMW, building a 10,000 square foot home in Memorial. Wow. I thought I was God's gift to the home building business. <laughs> and then the mid eighties came in a huge crash and uh, lost my home, almost lost the business, started driving a pickup truck instead of a BMW. And I really realized at that point in time that one of my greatest regrets was that I had had literally millions of dollars flow through my hands and no good had come out of them. Wow. You know, I, I, the money was, was lost. It, it, it went as quickly as it came. And uh, fortunately, uh, I remember during that period of time, I said, you know, God, give me, give me another boom and I won't screw the next one up. <laughs> and so uh, we went, we expanded to Austin and Dallas, and we were able to get profitable there to offset the, the losses in Houston. And uh, sure enough, by the late 80s and early 90s, we'd come back and we were a strong company. Sure. So the expansion into those other markets, how did that help the Houston market situation? Because I think you, you wrote in one of your books that you were going, uh, you had a market here that was selling around 30,000 units a year, or maybe it was a month, and then it went down to 6,000 units. Well, yeah, the overall market in Houston sold 30,000 new homes a year okay. in the early 80s, and it contracted to 6,000 home a year rate within like six months. Wow. It, it's kind of like the oil and bath, gas business or something yeah. else going to go, going down close to zero. But uh, so expanding into those new markets uh, allowed us to make profits to offset our losses in Houston. We wouldn't have made it if we would have just stayed in Houston. Sure, sure. And you were also involved in YPO back then. I was, uh, which was a group called Young Presidents Organization. It was, uh, it, it was good and, and uh, helped me navigate through this because a lot, a lot of the older folks had had been through a variety of situations like this. You know, and, and you're a young president running things and you think you know everything and then you get slapped upside the head the way we did and, uh, and it kind of brings you to your knees. And then, and then you, you come back with a lot of help and a lot of, uh, a lot of good advice from others as well. Yes, yes. So for a lot of people that look at the home building business from the outside, maybe not even from a real estate background, they see this magic that happens with our piece of raw land gets converted into a community of, of homes, and they don't understand the intricacies of the, the financing, of the development, of the, uh, the terses, and all that sort of effort. In maybe a minute or two, would you give us an overview of, that, of how that home building becomes, like, eventually forms into a, an actual livable home for a family from a piece of raw land? Who all is well, involved? Uh, uh, well, there are lots of people involved. I mean, first of all, you identify a piece of land, the right school district, the right location, et cetera, that you think the, uh, the market would like, mm -hmm. and then come up with, a, with a lot sizes and plans that you think the market would, uh, that, that would fit again, and then go to engineers and go to land planners and, and develop streets and, and, uh, and get all the approvals, and sewer and water and all those things you need to, to create a lot uh, that's buildable. And then hopefully with the right uh, expertise and design talent, create a home design that somebody will like, and then get it built and sold and uh, moved in with, with the customer focus being the, the, the core of this. So many times people really think that it's, it's a matter of the mechanics of building, but that's easy compared to attempting to really identify what the customer values and what to put in the home and how to design it for the broadest segment of the customers. Or if you're going for an active adult, you design it differently. And so just, just really coming up and being customer focused all the way along, that's, that's really been one of our strengths along the way. Sure, sure. 
And you've recently kicked off a new initiative, a joint venture. You started in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with this build-to-rent model, which seems really, really unique. I've never heard of this before. Even I work in real estate every day, obviously familiar with the multifamily family model, but this seems to be maybe the next evolution of that to one degree or another. Would you talk us about, talk us about why you decided to get into this build-to-rent model? Uh, we decided to get into it because tons of developers were asking us about it. Okay. There are literally billions of dollars chasing it, and it really came came out of the 2008 or 9 downturn, the, you know, the last financial uh, depression we had, really. And there were a bunch of homes that were foreclosed, and companies came in and bought them by the thousands, hmm. and developed a institutional rental market. Okay, uh, you know, renting homes has been around for years. In fact. There are more homes for rent than there are apartments for rent, but, it, but it's usually by a mom and pop. Or somebody moves from one home to another and they decide to keep it and rent it and get, and get the uh, investment increase on their own sure. uh, and let the renters pay for the mortgage payment. So it's been kind of a, a mom and pop uh, real estate business, so mm -hmm. to speak. Uh, but now institutional money got into it and found out that it worked well. Uh, but they, when they bought the homes uh, during the downturn, but what's happened, we found that, that a lot of customers are ready for an intermediate move between an apartment where you've got folks on either side of you and not great parking and not, no garage, et cetera, but to move from there in, in to purchase a home that takes down payments and credit scores and all those kind of yes. things, that there are folks that would like to have that, that home owning or home living experience. Yes. And so we're building those new communities and developers will come, will come to us that have a piece of property and we'll come up with a site plan and land plan and build great homes that last for a long time, just like we do for our customers and we're energy efficient, et cetera. And, um, and they're really two different types. One, one is called horizontal apartments, okay. which are usually one, two, some three bedrooms, but non-attached but there's small little cottages or, bung or bungalows, but without garages okay. uh, and kind of separate parking. And you can get higher density in those, but then a lot of people are also doing more traditional homes with two car garages, but smaller homes, denser, that where, where they can have a, a more traditional home living experience. Okay, and what role does the home builder play in this? Is this, is this specifically, you're doing custom development for somebody else who's then handling the financial brunt and the Economic. There are six or eight different ways to put okay, it together, okay, okay? And, and we're doing it a couple, couple of those different ways. Uh, you can take it from soup to nuts. You can, we sometimes bring the land, sometimes the developer brings the land. We've done the site plan uh, work and floor plan work because that's what we do for a living and build. And then oftentimes we'll develop, we'll deliver the homes to the developer and he'll lease them out as we go along the way. So we're, in that case, almost a general contractor, designer and general contractor, so to speak. Okay, okay. And is it primarily a, is it a, is it a hedge against inflation for these investors? Is it a, is it a play on depreciation and appreciation in the long term? Like, are they gonna, are they gonna roll these out and, and sell them at some point? Like, what is your, what is your take on the business aspect? Horizontal apartments will usually be sold in totality, just like an apartment building would. Okay. And they'll get them leased up and they'll return a certain amount per month and an institutional investor will come and buy it. So an alternative to, a, to a, an apartment building. The individual homes can either be sold out individually or in a, in a package as, as well. So it's creating value today. 
uh, and creating a, an income flow, okay. uh, and then selling the selling the project. Okay, okay. Because in, in multifamily business, you normally will think in terms of a cost per door and a cap rate on that cost per door. Um, and so it just seems like it's essentially the same sort of model, only that you have a little bit more land per, per door that you're budgeting for. Correct. And the reality is that we can build homes a lot cheaper than apartment developers can build commercial buildings because uh, the cost for labor is less. It's just, it's, it's not as expensive to build single family. You don't have all the same engineering and structure and steel and concrete. You're dealing with wood and other things. So it's a little bit, our construction costs are less, which allows us to have less density on a piece of land and be in about the same place wow. as an apartment will, will, would have, yeah. but a lot better environment without having people on either side of you and walking up three flights of stairs to, to get to your apartment. Sure, sure. And so this new model, this builder rent model, and also the traditional uh, builder's model where you're, you're, you're developing new communities, it seems like they both have heavy dependence on external financing mechanisms. There's a lot of cash flow management, there's a lot of uh, arbitrage, maybe materials cost purchasing, that sort of thing, uh, and also working with the lenders. What, what, is the, what is the involvement with the finance community with the home building community right now? Uh, we have relationships with mortgage lenders. Most major builders own their own mortgage lender. Really? We've got joint ventures with, with the mortgage lenders because those are very tight connection. Okay. Because uh, we want to make sure that we sell homes to people that can actually qualify for a permanent mortgage. Uh, we also, on the, on, the, on the bank side, we're large enough now to go to Wall Street and sell bonds and, and so to help our financing in that way to, for inner construction or property building. Etc. Okay. Um, on the uh, on the build to rent, you know the Wall Street funds are crazy. Yes. For them, and so the challenge is to uh, find the right deal and put the whole package together where it, it makes financial sense for them. That's right. Yeah. So you have this trade-off. Obviously, the use of third-party capital, whether debt or equity financing, uh, is always a a leverage, a point of leverage or a point of capitalization on opportunity. Where do you see the role of financing, whether it be a third party uh, debt or a third party equity stake uh, in your line of business as it pertains to risk and scale? Because you, you have a nationwide organization. It's very expensive to scale up to a nationwide organization and have growth like that without having some point of leverage there. What, what is the role of risk and debt, risk and financing for someone that's trying to scale an organization, not, not necessarily just for you yourself, but for a, a business person that wants to be able to gain scale and, and use leverage. To, to me, the challenge is to identify where the highest risk is. Yeah. For us, it's not in building the home. You know, we can always sell a home. For us, it's in the land side, because hmm. you, if you have a raw piece of ground and the market goes down, it's not of much value to anyone and you can't sell it. Yeah. And so the issue is, owning an asset that takes debt service when there's no revenue. And so in the last downturn, 2007, 8, 9, uh, our debt levels dropped dramatically because the majority of our debt is in the house and you can always sell a house. Yes. Uh, in fact, the public builders lost an average of 68% of their net worth in the last downturn and we lost 5% of ours because we don't go long on land and they do. Uh, most of our debt is, is in building the home. It's just a different business model. 
Sure. B being a private builder, if we lose money, it's personal. Uh, being a public builder, if you lose money, it's, it's not as personal. Yes, yes. Do you receive depreciation benefits as a, someone that works exclusively in the, or primarily in the real no, estate business? Okay. No. Okay. Okay. No. I wasn't sure if there was some sort of no, tiny no, no, no tax benefits other than we, we, we hope we're profitable and we hope we have the opportunity to pay taxes. Okay. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. So you, you have this, uh, from the outside, it looks like a, a really risky business model, but I, I guess for, if you know what you're doing, it's not that risky. If you don't take the land risk, it's not that risky, but we give up some earnings for that. Sure. Because we're, you talked about the financing model. We might go in and get a, get a bank for a 60% loan on the land. Then we'll get what we call, you know, hot money, expensive money. Yes. For the next 30% or something, we'll put in 5%. And that, that expensive money is at a 15% rate or something. So it's, we, uh, to be as conservative as we are, we don't maximize on all the, on all the risk. Yes, yes, yes. So you have a lot going on. You have obviously work in the business. You also spend a lot of time in nonprofit work. How do you, how do you spend your time? Well, let me kind of talk about, we talked about things coming back in the late 80s and, and, and early 90s. And remember, I kind of set up, you know, made a promise to God, uh, give, give me another boom and I won't screw the next one up. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he was faithful and so I, I wanted to be. And so uh, in about the early 90s, I had, had some heart issues from a birth defect. You know, I'd been on a retreat. I was kind of, you know, early 40s, middle-aged crazy when people are kind of saying, is this all there is or whatever? And so I, I made the decision to give half, half my time and half my income away uh, to, in the nonprofit business and so uh, to nonprofit uh, needs. And so to do that, it meant I had to go out and, and hire someone to run, run the business. We were in, I guess, five cities at the time, and I was working. Another reason I made the, the decision, I was probably working 70 hours a week, flying all over the country. Uh, classic entrepreneurial fashion, and, um, and, and I need to really move up to become a more professionally run business, yes. and I needed someone that had skills that were different than mine. I was a starter and a scaler. I wasn't necessarily, I couldn't grow the business. I, I got up to about $350 million and he's now got us up to about $2.5 million in sales, so wow. he was able to, to take it to, to, to another level. Um, and so once I made that decision to, to give away half and spend half my time on nonprofits, we really scaled up and started soaring. That's also really when I moved personally from being more about me. I mean, if you name a company, David Weekly Homes, it's, it's <laughs> a lot it's of pressure. <laughs> it, it, it's probably a lot about me, right? <laughs> uh, and so to move to the other and focus on the other uh, was really when, when we took off. And, and that's really when I made a bunch of different kind of life changes and different decisions. Start putting in profit sharing. We took care of our people in a whole different way. So we made a bunch of shifts when it became less me-focused and more other-focused that has really been the key to the company's success over the last 30 years. Certainly, certainly. And was the concept of halftime, I think, is it Bob Buford maybe that wrote yeah, the halftime Yeah, Bob book? Buford is a fellow who wrote a book called Halftime, which talked about making money in the first half of your life, hitting halftime, and then figuring out how you can help society once you'd kind of made certain earnings. Used to know Bob and talk to me. Ought to write a book called Part Time because that's that's kind of <laughs> what I did. Was I I got up to where I hit a certain level of success, 
and then was able to bring in some folks that had skills that were superior to mine in a lot of areas and take the company farther forward and allow me to go and take half my time and spend it on some other areas. Yes. You don't strike me as the eight hour a day type of guy. No, I'm, I'm not. I, I, I love my work and I'm blessed to be able to love, love my work and I still work hard. So, you know, still love what I'm doing. Yeah. Would you say that you have a integrated life where you, your, your business and your, and your charitable, you, you can switch back and forth and you can integrate them in certain instances? Yes, although I don't think that charitable has to be that different than business. I mean, um, you know, in business you have a for-profit business. In nonprofits you have a not-for-profit business, but organizational structures, ability to scale, ability to have impact, ability to identify customers, ability to help people reach their goals is all pretty similar. Yeah. And, and, and the issue is just, is the ultimate goals profit for the stockholders? or is the ultimate goal betterment for society, but a lot of the methodologies can be the same. You wrote in your first book about the seemingly illogical models of some of these nonprofits who have, um, they're very, very good at fundraising, but they're not very good at executing, but yet their fundraising covers up their operational execution. Uh, do, you, do you still find that there's a, there's a disparate model between the ones that are really good at fundraising and the ones that are not good operationally or missionally? Um, every organization's different. And uh, usually what happens, you know, in business, if you operate well and take great care of the customers, you'll get rewarded well and you can grow your business. Yes. In a nonprofit, sometimes, if you're a great fundraiser, you don't necessarily have to operate as well or meet the customer's needs at the same level because you're a fantastic fun fundraiser. Yeah. I've been fortunate to find and work with those that do both well. Usually what happens if you have a wonderful, passionate, nonprofit person, they're great at executing on their passion, Yes. helping people, whatever, and what they're not great on is the fundraising part or the business part or whatever, and that's where I can come alongside and help them. What I've, what I've really enjoyed in this kind of second half of my life, so to speak, when I've been focusing on philanthropy, is I, I can take all the skills that, that, that help grow a successful business and help these nonprofits uh, grow their activities and, and their business in a way. Because I usually have the best luck with smaller organizations between 500,000 revenue and 5 million, where I can come in, they've got passion, they're, they're not a startup, they're doing, they're doing great work, but they might just need some help in moving to the next level and scaling, certainly scaling up. Yeah, yeah. So you wake up in the morning, you have all these different options of how you can use your time and how you can uh, allocate your attention. How do you decide how to, like, where to allocate your attention on any given day? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to say that I was better at prioritization and, uh, and being proactive and everything, but to be quite honest, uh, there, there's so much going on that, that the opportunity is trying to figure out where not to spend the time yes. <laughs> to, uh, to allow myself to have the time where it can have the most impact. And what I attempt to do is ensure that, that wherever I invest my time, not spend my time, but invest my time, it's in an area that, that will have long-term impact on a, lot, on a lot of people and not just be kind of singular aspects. And I've been fortunate that since I have this platform of Dave, Dave Weekly Homes, people like you will want to talk to me. Yes. Where yes. if it was Craftsman Homes and I was Bob Smith, I wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> and so 
uh, Rick, Rick Warren calls it, we've each got a stewardship of affluence, the money we have, but we also have a stewardship of influence yeah. of the people we know and the experiences we've had and, and, and what we've grown, how we've grown over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And so I'm attempting to use both those together to help society and, and help people flourish. Certainly, certainly. You mentioned the term impact. Uh, you, you're also known as a big KPI guy. You're, you're a very big measurement guy. Does the measurement of impact primarily, is it, is it, does it on the organizational level or is there a way that you impact, you measure your personal impact as you're working and switching between business and nonprofit and maybe societal and other types of endeavors? Uh, oh, wow. That's a great question, and I haven't thought about it like that in terms of do I have more impact spending more time on the company side or on the... On I haven't the, figured out how to measure. That's why I'm asking. On the, on, on the philanthropic <laughs> side, the reality is I've got an awesome team at the company, and they might do better if I didn't spend as much time there. I mean, I mean they are great. And so within the company's standpoint, my role is to wave the flag. Yes. To, to be David Weekly in one of our 19 cities, <laughs> to talk to developers, lenders. I, I'm still kind of the vision caster. Uh, but on the nonprofit side, it's coming alongside these incredibly passionate and wonderful individuals um, and helping them fulfill their dreams to impact more people in a greater way. And that might be in fundraising, it might be in strategic planning, it might be in creating a new board, it might be in in thinking about digital and how they might be able to use that in ways that they haven't. I mean, it's a whole, you know, potpourri of business activities that I've been exposed to over the last 40 years that a, you know, a executive director running a $2 million organization, there's no way they've had the same exposure. Yes. So it's taken my time and exposure in attempting to, to catapult and, and to lift these folks up faster in a strong way and encourage them so they can move forward. Certainly. So the, a big part of your leverage, I imagine, is to leverage on time that you get through putting together these management teams and your various efforts there. Do you, how, how are the management teams set up specifically? You know, you've got a business. Some people have family offices that they use to run their businesses and their nonprofit lives. I know you have the foundation as well. How do you, how do you set up your management teams and, and, and be able to manage all, everything going on? Because you possibly, you couldn't possibly imagine that all yourself. No, it, in the first place, we love to give people personal responsibility for what they're overseeing. So we as a, as a builder are structured in a way to where we have a project manager that has bottom line responsibility over two or three communities. Okay. And they're running their own $20 million business, $30 million business. They have salespeople, they have builders, they have warranty people, and, and they run the business. Yes. And you can have measurements and compare the different project managers, compare the price ranges. And so we have 60 of these guys around the country and they report up to another 20 folks that are our division presidents and they have their own KPIs measurements and they all roll up and then the six regions. And then I get to see the total and also get to dive down some and understand each different community and what the strengths are and what the weaknesses are. And since we have a company where we have profit sharing and a great culture and all the things that, that we have as a company, they share best practices. And so having 60 different crackerjack teams out there that are each trying in their own way to, to go win in the marketplace and share, this really worked for me in this way, and this really worked for me for this way, 
it's incredibly powerful. Yes. And uh, so you've got these wonderful entrepreneurs, and you just you, you just uh, you know give them an opportunity to fly and help them along the way, and great things happen. Yeah. And you, you've won numerous awards for your culture as well. Yeah, we're very proud. We're, we're we've been on Fortune magazine's best place to work, uh, hundred best place to work, fifteen times now, and. Uh, one other builder has been on it once. I mean, you know, it's a fairly doggy dog kind of business. Yes. Uh, yet at the same time, what we found is that our customers appreciate having people that have been there for a long time and have long tenure and take care of them. Our management team, I think, has an average of 18 years worth of tenure with the company. So uh, we're not, I mean, once somebody gets trained up and is doing a great job and, you know, you go through a downturn and people learn so much, I mean, the last thing we'd want to do is change over our, our managers because they're just great quality people that really care for the customer. And, and the whole customer focus, you know, every builder, when they sign on in the, their computer in the morning, it shows their customer satisfaction ratings. And the same with the salesperson. And wow. they speak with one voice. So there's kind of no, no place to hide. I mean, everybody can find David Weekly. If there's a problem out there, mm-hmm. there are 7,000 homes, I'm very available. <laughs> they can find me. <laughs> How do you... How do you measure progress? Are there, are there specific KPIs that, that are your favorite KPIs to, to keep an eye on over the years? Well, uh, yeah, our favorite ones are customer-oriented, and, and would you definitely recommend a David Weekly Home and a score of one to five, yeah. and, and definitely five, and uh, the difference between just satisfied, you know, and, and definitely would, would recommend, it's a huge difference in, in getting that. And those, those are your raving fans, your cheerleaders, and, 35% of our sales, you know, are, are from referrals and wow. 98% of people shop on, online and we've got 92% of people that definitely would recommend us. So a lot of our business is by this customer referral. As you can imagine building a home, it rains, the tile doesn't show up, you know, some, you know, it's, it's muddy. I mean, everything that can go wrong goes wrong and people think that building a house is going to be a horrible experience and we think it can be a an incredible, wonderful experience. And so yeah. we've been able to hire people that, that believe that as well. Do you think that your management team and the people that work for you in, in these organizations, especially the home building company, take greater care of your customers because your name's on it and they respect you? I, I, I'd like to think that. I think it's more because we measure the results of their actions and they feel personally very, very responsible for it. So I don't think it's got much to do with me. I think it has a lot to do with their own personal pride and their personal results. At the start of each meeting, we read positive customer letters. We don't focus on the ones we didn't get. We focus on the, on the ones we, we do get. And it's just incredible how we impact these families' lives. Now, when we started on this process with, with the customer uh, delight to this degree in the mid-'90s, uh, my president at the time and I would go out and sit in a customer's home and find out where we failed if we didn't get the right scores. Wow. And we usually take the local manager with us. Sure. And just hearing about the experience that, you know, I thought this was going to happen and they told me this was going to happen. This was gonna, and we found out that, that we weren't speaking with one, one voice and a builder might say one thing and a salesperson would say one, something else and a warranty something else. So we just learned a lot over, over the years about how to, how to satisfy the customer and speak with one voice and meet their needs and try to delight them in this the most important purchase they're ever going to make. That's right. That's right. And it's always incumbent on the leader to reassert the mission, reassert the core values of the organization because people, people forget very quickly what the core values are and what we stand for. For sure. Yeah. And ours is 
building dreams, enhancing lives, that we start with our team, then our customers, then our community. So it's those, it's those three aspects that, that we work on every day. And so our team comes first because they're happy, they'll take great care of the customers, they take great, great care of the customers, they'll pay us well, and we'll be able to give back into the community. So it's, that's kind of how we look at things. Love that, love that. So you and your family are known to have your, have your fingers in a number of different pies. Uh, across, obviously, the home building company, you've got your family foundation that Robin runs. You also have your brother that runs uh, Texans for Lawsuit Reform, which I believe is, if not the, pack, the largest pack, it's one of the largest packs in Texas for the past 20 years, been very, very successful from a political organization, political influence standpoint. And then you also have other third-party organizations like Praxis, for instance, that you've been involved with and you and your team have been involved with for, for a number of years. How do you work and operate in all those areas? Do you have a handful of governing principles or philosophies that you use to execute in, across all those various areas as a family? Um, uh, first of all, this kind of starts, you know, I, I mentioned I was a Boy Scout and I literally, Emin was a Boy Scout, an Eagle <laughs> Scout. So was my, my brother Dick and, 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 and I think who runs Texas for Lawsuit Reform or was, was one of the founders. And, um, and I, I think the reality is, is that we work hard. I mean, we're not the smartest guys in the room. We're not the best looking. Uh, but we work hard. And I think that we try to maintain the values we learned at those early years, trustworthy, loyal, helpful, you know, yeah. friendly, courteous kind, of, and on. Uh, and so I really do think that we had great parents and we were inculcated with a certain value set that lives with us through all these organizations. And I think that that people see that and we treat them well and we respect them well and, uh, and, and they appreciate it. You know, one of the things that our company that's, that I've really uh, found has worked well is that we have shared ownership. So I've got four, 40 managers that are individual owners that, that, uh, that own stock in our private company, wow. just like I do. And a lot of private entrepreneurs, they'll say, yeah, I'll pay you well or whatever, but I'll never really give you ownership. Hmm. I found it to be very powerful to give ownership because when you're in a business that goes up and down, you know, in, in the 2008 and 9, I wanted those guys pulling oars as I did when we saw our life pass in front of us during a tough economic time. Yeah. And they're all smart and work hard and they care just, just like I do. Uh, and so as, as a side note on, you know, running a private company gets to be large over time, people have to decide what, what are they going to do? And I'm getting older and so, you know, 65-year-old guy, and I've got, well, I've got my son work, working in the company, and so, you know, it's a large private company, and what's, what's the end game? Yeah. Am I going to sell out? Am I going to go public? What, what's the end game? And we love being a private company. We love taking care of our customers and our team. We love being able to, to give back to the community. So uh, we decided to continue on the same way we have and stay a private company for the next 100 years or more, we hope. And so now we have a third of the company that's owned by the employees with 20% the senior manager owns, senior management team owns directly and another 15% in, in an ESOP. Okay, great. So about a third of the company is owned by the employees. We've got a third of the company that's owned by charitable trusts. Mm -hmm. So that'll continue to own well into the future. And then we've got a third of the company that's owned by the founding families. So well into the future, we hopefully have a line value between the families, the charitable, and the employees and the team members to where we can continue to do what we're doing well into the future. Great, great, great. And the, the charitable trust, obviously there's probably some, some UBIT benefit for 
contributing to a, a, a charitable trust. Well, there there really wasn't. I really? I sold the stock at, at at regular book value into the charitable trust because the laws are set up to where uh, that they don't want a charity to be able to own a company because then they wouldn't have to pay taxes like everybody else. So the charitable trust pay taxes just like you and I do, but I'm assured that over the long term, uh, a, you know, a third of the profits of the company will go into charitable needs. Which is a great shelter for your income as well. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a small well, business. Well, yeah, yeah. when, when, I, when yeah. I get my own personal income away, obviously I, I get the benefit of being able to deduct that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, fantastic, fantastic. So you have these different areas that you execute. You also have this concept of impact investing. I think is what you call it in your annual report for the foundation. Uh, some people might call it um, redemptive business or social investing or some sort of derivative thereof. Uh, you were involved, you were in office, was, was involved with creating an organization called Praxis Labs a number of years ago. I think it was one of the gentlemen that, wor that worked for you that created that and, and, and spun it out and took it public or took it, took it to the next level. Uh, what is your role and what is your perspective on impact investing, redemptive entrepreneurship and that, that whole world? Yeah, you hit about three different topics I did. In, yes. in, in one. Uh, social investing, to, de to define it, is, is where you put money out and you want more than just financial return, you also want a societal return, mm -hmm. okay? And I've done some of that, I haven't done as much of that because I'm more on the philanthropic side where I'm giving money to these organizations rather than loaning money to the organizations okay. or investing money in the organizations hoping to get a return. You know, one of the reasons why nonprofits exist is that they're usually in businesses that it's hard to get an economic return, mm -hmm. a usual economic return. And so uh, that's the reason I've stayed in, in some of those nonprofits, whether it's building homes for the homeless or, or you know, we started something after Hurricane Harvey with uh, Build Aid to where we refurbished 250 homes in a, in a nonprofit. And we took some of our funds and some of the city's funds and others, and we could do it at an average of $28,000 a house where the city or the government tries to do it, and it's sixty dollars or $100,000 a house, just because it's our business. And so uh, I've, I've found that, that, that this social investing, it, it depends upon what the goals are. Are your goals to get the funds back and help society? It's not a bad set of goals. Sure. Or the funds to, to go, uh, are your goals to go lift society up without any expectation of getting the funds back? Okay, okay. The Family Foundation, back in 2019, launched into a four-year plan to, it was, a, it was a new mission, it sounded like, or a new uh, strategic plan. Can you walk us through what that strategic plan was? I, I think to do that well, I've got to kind of walk you back to my philanthropic uh, adventure. Yeah, <laughs> Start, yeah. Starting in the early 90s, um, you know, I started, as, as most people would, you know, I got on a local board or two or did this. I had the advantage since I was giving half my time, I was able to go put more time into nonprofit things than most people could. Yes. In fact, as I thought about it the other day, uh, over the last 30 years, half my time, that's like 30,000 hours. What and they say, if you put in 10,000 hours to get good at something. Yes. I guess that means it takes me longer than most to, to figure out how to, get, get, how to get good at something. But I put a lot of time into it. And so it's through that process, I've, I've learned along the way, I've made lots of mistakes, as, as you, you would expect, I've learned some things about, about investing in nonprofits, and the first thing I've really learned is to, to invest in the leadership first. Hmm. You know, oftentimes, 
as in any business or you, you get excited about a model or about a different business idea or about this or, or that. And I've invested in lots of different ideas and concepts, but they fail unless they have great leadership. And oftentimes, if you have great, great leadership, even if the idea isn't the best, they'll figure that out and adjust it to, to have it meet the marketplace that they're, that they're going after. So it's really to invest in that leadership first. And uh, then growing along the way, I got involved in a number of different boards, on hospital boards. I mean, so I just learned a lot about the nonprofit business. And uh, after about 10 or 15 years, found that a lot of the Houston nonprofits have just wonderful people that are on the boards and, and leading them. And I found that I wasn't, my time wasn't really being best utilized there. I go and have a lunch and I see what was being presented, but the folks that were there could add what I could add. Mm -hmm. so, so I went to every continent around the world and, and, and went and tried to discover about going international. And that's when I decided to spend a lot more time energy international. It's a lot harder, you'd have a lot more impact, uh, but, and most people don't do it. In the, in the US, I think there are $400 billion spent philanthropically a year and only about 20 of it, maybe 30 of it goes yeah. internationally. Yeah. So if, if indeed we're a, everybody's our neighbor, I, I decided to go work where it was harder. Why would you say that there's more impact internationally? Uh, because it's, you know, you go to Africa, and if you take Young Life, a Christian nonprofit, yes. for example, I can get seven times the, the Young Life and the impact done in Africa than I can in the U.S. Okay. Does that mean that it, the U.S. shouldn't be supported? Of course not. I support the U.S. as well. But internationally, you can just get a lot done. You help people with their job training or incomes or education or health. Any of these things, you can get a lot more done there than you can investing in healthcare in the U.S. I mean, you know, we're just so big and so complex. Yeah. And I'm, a, I'm kind of a smaller entrepreneurial guy, so I like the, the scrappiness of that That's right. as compared to the big institutional things. What about from a leadership perspective? Because theoretically, superior leaders should be able to get you superior results from an impact standpoint, whether through greater efficiencies or greater effectiveness. Would you say on, on the whole that the, the leadership quality is the same around the world and so that so that the the differentiator in your impact from a cost standpoint assuming that foreign countries are less expensive to operate in is, is probably a big reason why you, you see greater impact internationally would you say that the quality of leadership globally is about the same or do you think that the less expensive operational costs is, costs internationally lend it to having greater efficacy uh, due to maybe lesser, lesser leadership? I know it's a complicated question. No, I think the leadership in the U.S. is the best in the world. Okay. Okay, it's the most competitive environment. You learn the most, you don't succeed unless, unless you're kind of the, the best there is. And we've also had educational, societal impacts. We've also had the best environment yes. to grow up in to become the best, okay, in, in the world at these things. So no, finding great leadership in Africa or China or wherever is so much harder because the society has not progressed as far. Now it's accelerating greatly. I mean, we've seen what's happened in, in China in, in different areas and entrepreneurs can blow the world apart once they're given education and freedom and ability, but the world's in all different kinds of places in terms of its, its leadership ability. And, and I'm investing in lots of schools really? in Africa because uh, you know, 
got every bit as much talent or smartness or whatever, but they just haven't had the same opportunity. So to me, creating equal opportunity is something great to help people flourish, because I think people want to do well and, and want to meet the market, want to take care of their neighbor, want to do this, but if you, if you don't have the education, you don't have the opportunity, it's just not there for you. So that's a real driver for me. Sure. Are there countries that you'll stay away from because of maybe a higher propensity towards fraudulent activity? You have to be careful of corruption in any country, yeah. okay? Even in America, you have to be, <laughs> or in some states, or, I mean, you know, so, I mean. Uh, some political buildings, yes. <laughs> right, I mean, all kinds of things. But clearly, um, some countries are less well-led than others. That's right. But there's still human beings there eking out their living, so it's a very tough kind of uh, moral question of whether or not you get involved in those in those countries or not, because you're not sure what'll happen at the end of the day, and yet at the same time, you've got people there that are working hard, doing their thing. So I will weight my decisions based upon sometimes the country leadership. Okay, okay. I, I would assume that if you understand that a certain country has a certain propensity to fraud, maybe you would weight that investment decision based off that risk. Yes, okay. exactly. Just like you would in business. And, right, and uh, put more diligence on the people you're dealing with there and maybe go there more often and see it and feel it. So we, we try to get on site and feel it. We've got a staff of five in the foundation. So we're, we're pretty serious about using those resources. Yeah. Uh, stewarding them well. Okay. Okay. You hear a lot of nonprofit pitches. What is the best charitable pitch you've ever heard? I don't, the best charitable pitch, uh, that's a, they're also di different. Uh, to me, the one that's had the most impact was when I got a call from a fellow at a, at a Christian camp, and he started telling me, and, and I just happened to be in my office, and I picked up the phone, said, hi, this is Anthony, I'm with this camp, and we've got a loan that's coming due, and this and that, and I just started putting the phone away, I'm not, we don't really do that, or, but I started listening to him, and it was a situation where a 2,000 acre camp with 450 beds that a two and a half million dollar loan, it, it would have cost 10 million, 15 million dollars to reproduce it. Yeah. And the camp was gonna go out of business in the next 30 days and the bank was gonna take it back and that entire camp would be, be gone unless we got involved. So I got my, called my friends, came and heard the story. It's a very compelling story met with the existing board members, kind of explained that we needed to take over the board if we were gonna go save this camp. So we took over the board. And today we went from, you know, two and a half million dollar loan and seeing 5,000 kids a year. Now it's 12 years later, that camp seeing 30,000 kids a year and it's at break even and, and doing well. So that investment, you know, that, that one-time investment and some expertise yes. in helping them, you know, out of their situation it created an ongoing, profitable, at least self-sustaining organization that can see kids well into the future. Yeah. Are you someone that focuses on or regularly does crisis philanthropy? Uh, I don't want to say regularly does, but I find, find myself, it depends upon what's on the other side of that crisis, okay? <laughs> if, if, if it's somebody with a, with a bad loan, but there's a big asset there and you can save it, we've now done like four or five camps that we saved, and so 100,000 kids will 
be going to camp this summer where the camp would be gone other than the fact that this group of us came in and, and, and helped. Uh, and it was a privilege to be able sure. to help, to take our resources and, and learnings and help them move forward. Um, on the other side, disasters, you know, you, you hear about, about those, okay, do I go send money to the Red Cross or where's the funds going? I've gotten involved enough in nonprofits that I understand that funds can go a lot of different directions. And so like, for example, in Hurricane Harvey, it was houses flooded. I'm in the home building business, so we just started up something to solve the problem. Yes. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in some recent, uh, you know, tragedies that, that have come on and the COVID, et cetera, we went and, and we gave to a city fund uh, that, that was involved, and, and yet we also gave, we, we found those organizations, that some of my foundation staff folks go out and find those organizations that are closest to the people that where they know that if you, you give $100 to this family, it'll see them through the next month or the next two months. And so we went and funded these folks and they're small, very local organizations, but they're in touch with the people. And so we gave the funds where we knew it would get to the right people directly to them. They already had their overhead covered. So these funds went directly to the people in need. Great. And so it's, we've fortunately been around long enough to know where, where, to, where to invest to get the most hopefully impact for the dollar. Certainly, and when you find a charity in crisis, one would think that just like a business in crisis in a, in a takeover or, or a, uh, a rescue operation, typically the current management team that got them in that place or the current board that got them in that place is not the right team to have in place going forward. How often do you find yourself doing board reorgs or having conditional strings to be able to get a, get a charity to where they need to be well, in a crisis situation, fortunately, it doesn't happen that often. But okay. in a situation where the organization's about to, to go out of business, we've had some that should go out of business. Yeah. What they were doing is no longer valid. Their model doesn't work, et cetera. And so we didn't get involved. Uh, on others, we've had a few where they needed a different executive director because they weren't, weren't able to get where, where they need to, needed to go. More, more often, it's the governance that's in place, the board of directors, is not taking their responsibility in the way that they could or should to see this going forward. Or maybe they, they didn't understand that as a board of directors, you're all in just to come and smile and, you know, and, and write a check for a, for a, you know, dinner or something. It's that your entire role as a board of directors for a nonprofit is to ensure that that organization survives and thrives. And so, Sometimes people get on boards because they think it's a nice thing to do or good to do, or they don't, they don't feel a sense of responsibility that I think they should as a board member. They're really the ones that are responsible for the success or failure of that organization. So I take it very seriously, and I, uh, when I get involved, you know, maybe I'll go hire a firm and help them have a board retreat or do some visioning work or, or go create a fundraising plan or go do any one of a number of different activities to try to reposition them so they see the potential and the possibility, because sometimes people just get stuck. That's right. And sometimes if you're in a crisis, you can't, you can't see where, where to go. And we say, look, if you do this, this, this. Going into COVID, one of my greatest concerns uh, and some things I saw were people, especially nonprofit leaders, when you, know, you couldn't have the event and are all my donors gonna stop? Or is this gonna happen? They almost, they kind of locked up. 
and they didn't take advantage of the opportunity to kind of, okay, what does the digital world bring? How does it let, let me reorganize in ways that I might not have before? And, and so they didn't really have much possibility thinking. So I did some webinars with Rice University or with different nonprofit groups and all about taking advantage of a crisis. You know, you never want to waste a crisis, right? That's right. And we've had one. Yeah. And some nonprofits have done some amazing things coming through this crisis. And you mentioned in one of those interviews that a lot of nonprofits were coming to you saying, well, we estimate a 10% reduction in revenues. And you said, no, no, you need to expect a 40% or a 60% reduction in revenues. And, and what would you need to do with your organization to solve that? What if it doesn't get fixed in three months? What if it takes a year and a half like it has? So, so they just weren't moving in that way. And PPP helped out a, out a, out a, out a number of them. But there were challenging times and everybody kind of saw their life pass in front of their face. And that's happened to me a couple different times. And I know it's scary, but you just got to move on down. And as a leader, my, my favorite de definition of, of leadership is define reality and give hope. Love that. Define reality and give hope. And uh, when we went through the downturns, we said, look, here's where we are. Here's what we're doing. Here's the reality. I know that the builder working beside you, you know, just got laid off. But the reality is we have to all pull together and move forward. And when we do, we will do this. And we have made it before. And we will make it again. And we'll hopefully hire that builder back. And indeed, we were able to. But things happen, you got to define reality, put faith in your people that they can, that they can take, take the reality, and then give them the hope for the future. And you as a leader have the confidence about getting to the other side. That's right, that's right. You mentioned the topic of governance a second ago, good board governance in a, in a charitable context. One of the most dangerous places a competent person who once really wants to effectuate change in an organization can be is being on a board surrounded by people that are there for the social aspect or because they write big checks, but they're not willing to put the time and the, and the, the sweat into it. What is your idea about the role of governance in a, in a charity and how important that is? And, and what do you see happening in the charities you work at? Are, is governance something that's even talked about most of the time? Depends upon the size of the charity and where it is in its, in its maturation. You know, usually if you get it with a beginning charity, they've got friends and family on the board. Yeah. And they're there to support the founder and they love them and they want to help them and do all those things. But those sometimes aren't the people that have the experience and the knowledge about what, how they need to go forward. So you see different board types as an organization matures. And if people would recognize that, and then they need to kind of upgrade, and it's not upgrade in terms of people, it's in terms of experience or ability to give. Yes. Uh, because people do give to people and who they know and, and who the, you get a different group in at each different size of the organization. And as the organization gets more professional and moves kind of upstream, they can surround themselves with a different group of people. And, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And if you uh, have some really, if you get a few good people on your board, then you can get a few more good people and you can kind of transition the board over time. And in terms of board tenure, that's, that's important as well. And I usually like to see, you know, uh, tenure times of, of one year and then a three year and a three year. And so it's easier for me to come recruit you to be, be on the board if we say, Rick, come on on, try it out, 
We'll have six meetings, see if you're additive, see if you like it. We'll see how it works for us. And if you don't show up half the time, Rick, it doesn't look like it was really good for you. Why don't we just go ahead, thanks so much for your help. And, and why don't we have, have that, that one year term be it for you? And, yes. And then, but you're coming, you're getting engaged, you're getting more engaged, then let's move to a three year term. And then another three year term and then off and start fresh again. Once you've been on the board of a nonprofit, you'll always be a financial supporter of that nonprofit, right? You spent time on it, you love it, you've been there, you got memories, you got all these things. So for a nonprofit to get new fresh blood all the time is it's life saving, it's life growing. That's right. That's right. All right. So you're known as the coach, as the mentor for nonprofits. A lot of CEOs will come to you. Probably a lot of board members will come to you, ask you for advice. I'm going to ask you for advice. Um, I am finishing up. I've got six months left on a term. I'm chairman, $200 million organization. We've recruited about 50% new board members, seven person board uh, over the last two years, about 50% of them are new blood, six year maximum terms. Uh, we just went through a five year new strategic planning process. Uh, what sort of things should I be working on as I roll off this six month period as a chairman? Because you, you write quite a bit about the role between the chairman and the organization and the responsibilities of the chairman. What is a chairman that's rolling off of a, of a board of an organization that size supposed to be doing? Do you have two or three great people that could step into your role that are better than you are? Everyone's better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> you got a whole group. You, you got a yes. big group. Yes. Uh, you probably don't believe that. <laughs> My bet is you got your eye on one, yes. and but not two or three. Yes. Yes. And uh, you know what your strengths are. I mean, one of the good things about getting a little bit older, we recognize we always focus on our weaknesses, but we also rec recognize we have some strengths. What do they bring, and how do they fill in? And 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 to me. All about a board and a team is finding out where each person's strengths are. And I have to admit, I am partial to entrepreneurs on boards rather than one accountant and one attorney and one this and really? one that. Okay. Because you can hire great accountants, you can hire great attorneys, people that have a breadth of business sense that think creatively about where can we go or what are we doing or what's the next step or we haven't looked at our insurance in a while, or let's do that, or let's do this. Um, to me, they will push the organization farther forward faster. And they're creative and they're, they're action folks. They're not attorneys by, by their nature. They're looking out for the downside, Yeah, which is awesome. But if someone shows you the downside all the time, then you're not moving forward. So. To me, you need to figure out when you need to bring these people in. But I love a board of folks and guys and gals that are out there wanting to grow something and make something happen. It makes for more exciting board meetings. It's not just, you're not just kind of going through the motions. The motions ought to be handled by staff, yeah. you know, on a, on a regular basis. You ought to be looking forward, thinking about all the potentials. You know, I know somebody that can do this. I know somebody that can do this. The other thing is entrepreneurs can write bigger checks and oftentimes will than accountants, attorneys, you know, a teacher, because I'm in the, in the education field, you know, uh, another healthcare professionals because we're in the health field. I mean, you can get those folks to serve on advisory boards and do all kinds of things. 
but you got to fund the organization, you got to run the organization, and you, and you want it to move forward. That's right. That's right. David, we talked about your coaching of executive directors, CEOs, and nonprofits, and how a lot of them will come to you for not only for checks, but also for some advice. What are some of the topics and questions that you ask these CEOs, these executive directors about? Usually before I see them, I will have them send me uh, all their organization mission statement, their budgets for the last three years, their board list. Uh, kind of what their goals are. If they have a strategic plan, hopefully they do. Just so I can, well, before I really meet them face-to-face, -face, the first time I want to know enough to know whether it's worth my time and theirs to meet with them. And so I'll, I'll go over that, and assuming it kind of meets what I feel like I'm called to fund and, and whether I can help them, I'll come in and usually they'll talk about whatever's coming up and the $25,000 or $50,000 they'd like to, to, uh, to raise. But I'll, based upon what I've read, I'll be able to see, you know, I see your, the budget's been flat the last two or three years. Are you paying on any growth or what's going on or what are your greatest challenges or, or where do you all have, have the need or what do you see? And, and I'm really just trying to see if they're really self-aware. Yes and uh, tell me that they normally don't have their, their board tenure and what their turnover is. I'll, I'll never forget one, one group I met with. Uh, let me see if I can talk about this without identifying them. <laughs> there was, uh, you know, they, they were helping uh, lower income folks and said, you know, so, so how many folks are you currently helping? And it was, you know, a grouping of, you know, 60. And I said, well, so how many groupings are there in the city? Well, they're, 250, and what are your plans next year? Well, we plan on going from 60 to 63. Wait, there are 250 that have the need what you do, and your plan is to grow to 63. And the chairman was there, and he was an older guy like me, and uh, how long have you been involved? Well, I've been involved 20 years, and this is kind of my deal, and this, um, you know. Yeah. And I said, man, you guys are doing great work. Appreciate you coming in. Here's a check for whatever, but I just can't work with them because they weren't in a place where they really wanted to move and go and grow and do those things. And so part of it's identifying where, it's not just identifying where they need help, it's also identifying if they really want help. Because there's no use me trying to push a string uphill. Yes. And it's not helpful for them. And it's not helpful for me in my time and I'll frustrate them and myself, and it won't be a positive experience for either of us. So understanding that and trying to meet people where, where they are and seeing where they are and identifying where they really want to move somewhere or not. And I might have ideas that are totally wrong because I don't get, get their deal. So, you know, who am I? I'm not trying to judge whether they're good or bad, or, but I am trying to determine whether or not it makes sense for me to invest time and money with them. Certainly. So, so it's not a, you know, I'm trying not to judge them, I'm just trying to ensure that we're jointly making the right, the right decision. Yeah, yeah. On whether to move forward. So when you have a director that's been there for 20 years, clearly there's no term limits. 
Right. That's, that's a huge issue. Uh, again, getting back to the, the topic of governance, uh, you look at two organizations that had dramatic failures in the last few years, uh, Gospel for Asia and also Ravi Zacharias' International Ministry, RZIM. Both cases, clearly bad governance in place. Both cases where you have a little bit too much trust in the executive director or the CEO role where there's no accountability there. What sorts of role would you will you play when you identify that there's bad governance in place? Will you want to do a complete re-governance process well, or would you kind of ease it into it? In situations where you have a charismatic leader that surrounds themselves with uh, sycophant, you know, board members that are there because they want to be close to the to the charismatic leader, yes. I just don't get involved in those because I'm, I, first of all, it's not my place to try to change things if it's if it's already set and that's kind of the way it is you can't I mean the, the leaders got control of the situation in that case um, so I mean each situation really is different but uh, to, to me I don't get involved unless I feel like there's a willingness for people to move forward uh, and normally I'll go over some different ideas with them and see if that even resonates. What I want to make sure I never do is manipulate an organization with a check. Yeah. Right? And so, and I've done that in the past. I see someone, I say, wouldn't this be a great idea? And I'll fund it. And they go, well, yeah, $100,000 or $50,000. I think that's a great idea. They get into it. They, they, they were never bought in. It's not a good idea. Yes. It doesn't go anywhere. And it's just, and so... I have to make sure that I really understand the organization's mission, what they're good at and what they're capable of, and that what we're talking about is additive and not misdirective in any way. Because um, money can hurt organizations as well as help organizations. So I've, I've, really, I've learned, <laughs> I, I didn't know this starting out, but I've, I've learned that I'm wrong a lot <laughs> and, and that I need to ensure that what I come up with, what we come up with, that they're bought into and see it and go, oh yeah, that'd be great, and how do we do this? And they get excited about it rather than the check driving the, the initiative. Yeah, have you ever gotten into a situation like I have where you write a check to a ministry and you realize, oh, that was 30, 40% of their annual budget and they come back next year expecting the same sort of thing? I never write a check that's over 10% of someone's annual budget. Okay. I, I say never. Uh, that, that, that's kind of my max number because I don't want anybody to become dependent on me. And maybe they're doing great and everything's rolling, but then something happens and goes a different direction and, it, and it's no longer a good fit for me. Maybe no fault of their own, it's no longer a good fit for me. I don't want to ever put an organization in a, in a bad place. Yes. And, and so uh, I, I just, you know, on a capital campaign, I might go 20 or 25%. But how I do that and when I do that, is it 10%? Is it a matching for the last 15%? So methodology on those things are, is important as well. Yeah, yeah. How much of the decision is, is a gut instinct? Well, I fundamentally think gut instinct is formed by, you know, 30 years of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I, I'd say it's, you know, it's, it's all gut, but it's, but it's not gut because it's, it's, it's informed. I will always look, look at the information I'll meet with the people, I'll see, I'll know. Now that I've got the five on a foundation staff, I mean, each week I get a 
uh, grant report that comes in and we'll talk about it and go over it and go over it in detail. Normally they'll, they'll go, you know, I'll ask five, 10 questions, they'll, they'll go back, they'll dig deeper and say, well, yeah, we could have set it up like this or that's a good idea or that isn't because 30 years into it, even though these are professional nonprofit people, I've got as many hours in it as they do. And um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a joint thing where we, and, and we all see different things, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's great for me to have this group of very talented people because when I was doing it on my own, I didn't see everything. And these folks see more. One of them lives in Africa, knows, knows the country, knows the environment. It's, it's a world of difference. Yes, yes. One of the things that we like to invest in is fundraising and administrative overhead reworks because it seems like you get greater leverage on that. For instance, if you have a 10% fundraising cost, you by definition get a 10, a 10 time yield on that, on, that, uh, on that leverage. Are there certain areas of organizations where you'd like to invest your capital that, that maybe have a greater leverage for you? I, I look for organizations, uh, really three key things. One is, is, is there leverage? If I put in a dollar, do I get $5 worth of impact? Yeah. So one is leverage. Uh, a, a second one is scalability. You know, can it scale? And when I say scale, I mean, I don't mean going from 60 to 63. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going from 60 to 120 to 240 to, I mean, I'm talking about really scale. Yes. That, that's what I've done in my business. I mean, I, that's what gets me excited. That's what, that's what I like to do. So how can we really scale? Uh, the business. And then the third item is, is there any way to get any sustainability to where you're not dependent upon one guy's check? Yes. Is there any income generation possibility? Maybe they're currently relying upon 10 guys that all give 25 or 50,000 each, and they need to get a broader brush of people that are giving $100 each. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we ensure that there's sustainability? that we can help build an organization sustainability in, in their model for the longer term. So those three things, leverage, scale, and sustainability is what I usually like to look for. Love that, love that. And obviously they could look at other sources like public funds, grant writing, sure. that sort of thing. Do you, do you find there's low hanging fruit there from your perspective and these people just never thought about it? So, so sometimes, uh, I'd say oftentimes, we help an organization by hiring consultants for them. Okay. Small organization usually won't be able to afford, I can't spend $50,000 on this, or you know, I've got a $600,000 budget and I need, okay. to, I need to pay the staff. And I, so we'll go hire someone for them that can go take them to, to another level. We've got some, some grant writers in Indonesia that go and find organizations around the country or around the city, and they're doing grant writing offshore. And, and these small organizations don't have any grant writers, they don't have the expertise. They'll go find them and they'll grant, grant write and they'll pay for themselves. I've, I've got some consultants around, fundraising consultants that are retired that will meet, meet with these folks and show them how to fundraise. Wow. There's a group called Mission Increase, which we just brought to Houston, which is a fabulous organization. And all they do is they help Christian organizations learn how to raise money. They have 3,000 Christian organizations around the country that they're working with. And so I help fund them with a group of guys in Houston, get started here, and they're having a kickoff on June 3rd, and they'll have 250 people in a room that they're gonna train how to fundraise. Awesome, what's that worth, right? Wow. So that's high leverage. Yes, 
and, and they're in, I don't know, 12 cities around the country. I also hired, hired put a full-time guy in the Christian Camping Association because camps are going through an extremely tough time, as you can imagine. Yes. And they're really important. Anybody that's had a, had a, had a youth faith experience, so they're extremely important. And so uh, they can help these camps survive and thrive. So, I mean, I always look for things that can have high leverage. Love that. Love that. Purpose. You have two ways of looking at purpose. Purpose in life, you know, what is what you're doing action-wise? Is, is it purposeful? Does it, does it accrue purpose? And then also you have a purpose of life. Is, is like, what is the reason for my life? From your perspective, how does someone find purpose in what they're doing day in and day out in their work and their, in their life? You know, for, uh, for years I wondered, okay, should I go be a pastor, or go do this, or go, to, go do something else, right? <laughs> yes. If, if I'm really, you know, Christian, am I doing all the right things? Then I came across this, this verse called, Brothers, each man is responsible to God, shall remain in the situation the Lord has called you to. And uh, it said, okay, I'm good at what I do. It, it's working in the marketplace. Yes. Uh, God's given me some skills that's allowed me to do this. Um, so how do I use those skills best, and what am I to do, and how do I bring what I believe into the workplace in an appropriate manner? You know, we have chaplains. We, we, I mean, so we, we follow my, my faith belief. We're not a Christian co- corporation or, or organization necessarily, but everybody knows what I believe, and we have chaplains available for our, for our team, and, and we try to help them grow in all kinds of ways. Uh, but we're all given certain skills and abilities and as we figure out what those are and when we go play in those areas and go work in those areas I think we find more joy I mean from my standpoint you know just being born in the US and having parents I had and having the education opportunity I've had after after being all over the world and seeing you know, why me? Why, why did I get born in America? Why did, why did I get born in Houston, Texas? Yeah. Why did I get born to the parents I have? Why did I get to have the education I had? Why did I, so I just feel a real deep sense of responsibility. You know, I mean, I just, it, it's just, I don't want to say it weighs on me, but it motivates me, okay? Sure. So a deep sense of responsibility. And then when I, when I act on that, on that responsibility uh, with good stewardship and effort, et cetera, I just get to a great place of joy. And so, so to me, I, I kind of feel like, you know, people talk about getting in the flow. I mean, I can kind of feel I'm in the flow when I'm doing what I'm good at and it's helping other people, et cetera. Uh, it, it feels like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Never forget, what, what, what was that? Chariots of Fire. And he said, you know, he feels, feels God's, I forgot the exact quote, but he, you know, when he runs, he feels God's joy or whatever. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, it, it's just, to me, we each, if we can find that place, we're, we're doing what we know we're good at and we're helping others along the way in lifting them up and helping sustain them and transform their lives in a positive way. What else is there? That to me is the, is the peak experience. That's great. And your first comment, comment when we started today's conversation was talking about your neighbor, about your duty to your neighbor, your loyalty to your neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself. It seems like everything you do has to do with your neighbor. Even the fact that you build houses, you actually create neighbors when two houses are sold by, next to each other. Right. Uh, now, again, for me in the early 40s, moving from being me-focused to being other-focused, 
was a huge part of it. You know, when we started the business, my, my brother and I, it was called Weekly Homes. And I'll never forget our first community was, uh, it, that we had a billboard up, was Weekly Homes from the 30s. Homes for $32,000 wow. back then, a while ago. That dates me really strongly. <laughs> but uh, Weekly Homes from the 30s, and I'll never forget it. We had a pickup truck from Arkansas pull up and full of stuff and says, where are those homes to rent for $30 a week? <laughs> <laughs> made total sense. Weekly homes from the 30s. So then I called up my brother and said, we need to change the name of this. Let's call it David Weekly Homes. Of course, 23-year-old egotist. He says, sure, whatever. You know, you can care. And uh, so we call it David Weekly Homes. And then by the time I reached my, you know, early 30s and I had kids coming up, I read, this can be a problem. Name on the billboard. People are going to think you're rich kids. This isn't good. Yeah. You, don't, you don't want to grow up with that. So I did a market study, looked at changed the name to Craftsman Homes, and, and found out then that that, that wouldn't really work because we already had a brand. Yes. And so kept it and then, you know, enjoyed it on and off through the time. And now, you know, in my mid-60s, um, realized, you know, God kind of had a plan and I've got a platform now. Yeah. And my stewardship of influence as well as my stewardship of affluence. And, and how do I use that appropriately? How do I appropriately steward that? in a way that can help. That's right. So your brother was already in a business of his own? But, yeah, but my, my brother uh, was a real estate broker and doing better than I did, just selling big piece of land, selling Copperfield to Friendswood or, or you know. So I, I kept, you know, I think we had 100 people before I could keep up with him with one person. Wow. And, and so, no, he just, he, he in, invested in me and, and he's been a great mentor uh, for all these years. He's never been directly involved in the business, but he's, he's, he's been a great big brother mentor. Yeah. Is he still a shareholder? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kept, kept me out of trouble. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Going into development. So, you know, I was a brash young guy. And so, no, he's still a shareholder. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. What is something that you see if someone's trying to find purpose in their life and there's someone that maybe has worked for a while and they just really don't sense that there's a purpose in their life, what do you see something that that that's tangible that they could do that would then give them purpose with how they're living their lives. I uh, I kind of found purpose when I moved from uh, say again from me focused to other focused. Okay. And so if you're there, you're working, you're you're doing things. How can you go and and turn your life around to a certain degree and help others? Uh, now, someone asked, asked me this, this question, and it's, and it's one thing in it, that I can do in a business and hire some people to run the business or do this, but what do you do if you're a school teacher, single mom, and you got two, two kids? Yeah. Okay, so do you go teach Sunday school when, when the kids are in Sunday school? How do you find some way to move beyond yourself and help others? And we've all got that capacity and that ability, and I've just found tremendous joy when I do that even if I'm under the greatest of pressures for whatever set of reasons, if we can go help others, I think, I think we're given relief mm -hmm. and we experience joy. Yes, yes. A.W. Tozer says it's not what a man that does that makes him holy, it's why he does it. And I think you're right. We can live our daily lives no matter what we're doing and, and find purpose in that. Yeah, and find something that we can do where we're, we get beyond ourselves. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. We had a thank you present for you uh, coming on the show here. I like to get everyone a, a gift. And uh, you are uh, someone that coaches a lot of people. And this is a, uh, a tool that I like to use.
great. For folks that come in. And I don't know if you're familiar with that book. I'm not. Okay. So that is a fun John Ortberg book. Uh, yeah, I know um, him. Yeah. And um, it's about, it's based off of a Dr. Seuss uh, rhyme or story uh, about going through open doors. And it's a, it's a book about being aggressive in your pursuits with the knowledge that not only is God with you right here, he's also already on the other side of, the, of that closed door. And it's okay if you go ram down some closed doors because he's already there, he's already been there. And he'll be with you just the same, you know, same as he is now. And just go, go ahead and make some, try some stuff, mess so, some stuff so, up. So confidence. Yes. yes yeah, yes. I'm, I'm not sure people would, would appreciate you, you giving me this. As, <laughs> as, as, as one of my non, nonprofit executive directors called me, that David, you're just the holy agitator. <laughs> Because I just, I don't know whether to be positive about that or, or, or negative, but it's yeah. fairly apt. Yes, yes, yes. So the wives really don't like me because whenever their husbands come and say, well, I'm thinking about going into the mission field, or I'm thinking about starting a nonprofit, leaving my job, I give them that book. And they always go. They always take the risk. Is that right? Yes, yes. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty impressive book. Great. So Great. kind of a fun, fun thing there. Good. Thank you. So as you... As you are learning, you're curious, you've got these new business models that you set up, you're, you're looking at a, a large number of organizations across multiple uh, domains, you seem to have this sense of curiosity about you. What, what are you reading? What do you pay attention to? What, do you, what are you watching on TV? What kind of movies do you like? You know, tell me about the, your media intake. Well, our, uh, all senior managers, we read uh, a book a month. Okay, and go over them, and they're, and they're, they're business books, they're customer books, they're you know digital, you know. I mean, I'm I'm having to learn a whole new de 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 definition. You know, we had two or three people in digital ten years ago. Now we have fifty people full time. Wow. I mean, it's it's and and I have to get reviewed on it regularly because it's changing every <laughs> few weeks. Uh, and so uh, we're ongoing readers. I spend time in devotionals uh, every morning. Uh, I admit that, that I, like a, like a lot of people have during this COVID time, my wife and I have found some, some, some TV series that, yeah. that, that, that we like or that we re-watch again, you know, that, that are almost mindless, but, 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 but good in, in, in different senses. Uh, it's fun, we've just, some Bible studies I'm involved with, we, we got back face to face for the first time yeah. after, you know, a, a, over a year of, of, of virtual. Uh, I've always got lots to read for the business for the nonprofits. I, I mean, I've got foundation reports, I've got other things. And so I'm always uh, learning as other people feed things into me and I feed them back. So I'm always kind of active in, in that. When I get on a, on a plane this evening, I've got a brief, briefcase full of opportunities. <laughs> No, and and it, and it is. It's a joy to read what other people are doing and how they're doing it, and how we might be able to help, or what some of the challenges. You know, as I said earlier, these these Christian camps have just had such a heck of a year. You know, it's it's great that they make money when folks come to camp, but when there's no no revenue, like last summer, yeah, it's really tough. And so, what you do and how you do it and how you keep your spirits up and how to go forward. So I've, I've, I've been through these before, and so I, I can help in those, in those ways. What's your most significant obstacle to, to what you do philanthropy-wise? Um, it's, it's finding enough organizations that meet the kind of standards that we have. I'm trying to double 
my giving in the next couple years because uh, I want to have it spent down, at least my current foundation within the next 20 years. You know, I, I think God gave me the, the ability and the position in, in this time in history, et cetera, to go create this, uh, these resources. And I think I'm supposed to invest them on his behalf the best I can yeah. while I'm here. So for me, I mean, we've staffed up. We had two people at the foundation a year ago, and now, now we have five, and, and we got to ramp it up and at the same time be as good a steward as we have been because, you know, cash is hard to come by and the ability to go get, get, get away. This isn't, I'm always amazed that, that great business people will make their money with great rigor and discipline and then it's almost like they flip a switch in their head and they give it away based upon Susie said this or Sam talked to me about this or that they make they do great rigor on their financial investments for themselves, but yet the financial investments for God, they give it away like it's candy or something. It's just it it just it's it it's mind altering to me that they don't feel sometimes, and I'm, you know, broad generalization, but, that, but they don't feel the same responsibility that I feel to be a steward of what we've been given and been able to create through the skills and abilities that he's given us. It's almost as, it's kind of like, okay, I'm in church on Sunday and I do business the rest of the week or whatever, and I don't, and the two shall never cross. It's almost, it's almost that same kind of thinking. Yeah. That, that, okay, I put on my giving hat or I put on my business hat. I, and I give with my heart, and I do business with my head. And I think we ought to give with our head too. Doesn't mean we don't have heart. Don't misunderstand me. But you, you got to put some of that same sense, sensibility in there. When somebody comes and asks me for funds for their uh, mental health activities in Houston, I want to go out and do research and find the ten best, mm -hmm. and see if this one's getting the most impact for. God's investment dollar. Yes. And, and so I just feel a sense of responsibility for that. Yeah. So you've trended more and more over the last 10 years towards international giving because there's a bigger reward there. Are there other tendencies where you're trending maybe towards social services or discipleship or other things like that? Are there other areas of impact that you see as being greater interest to you now than there were maybe 10 or 20 years ago? Uh, the whole racial inequity situation, uh, my, my daughter gave me a book before the Rodney <laughs> situation came up uh, on, I think it was called Just Mercy by, uh, I should know this for this, but uh, I, I ended up uh, kind of taking a pilgrimage to uh, Mobile, Alabama and going to the Slavery Museum and seeing this, seeing that, just me alone, and then so I've been reading a lot, and this whole critical race theory, all these different things that are going on, just trying to understand, and 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 things are so uh, dysfunctional, and you're either on the right side or you're on the left side, and you're so far away, and there's like no nuance in the middle. And so I'm trying to understand the nuance in the middle. And fortunately, Tim Keller has written on this brilliant works on on, on all these issues, and. Uh, and, and so I, I, I'm, I'm really trying to understand th those issues better. And should I intersect? And if so, how and where? 
Uh, and, you know, when I went to high school at Memorial High School in West Houston, 3,000 kids, there was one black kid, right? And the world's a very different place. And I've always felt uh, a heart for those that, that are under-resourced and didn't have the same life experiences that I had. I mean, I didn't cause my life experience. I was just born into it. So I've always felt a need to go help. Uh, but how do I best help? And how do I understand? And how do I give people a, a leg up and an equal shot at, at doing it when the environment's different, the culture's different, everything's different? So, so what are the right answers? And that is a lifelong learning experience. That's right. And race is a really difficult thing to discuss as a white male. It's very, very difficult to discuss, especially with cancel culture right. these days. Right. And, and so I just, I, I'm, I'm attempting, I mean, fortunately we're not a public company. I don't, I don't have to, you know, I, I can try to figure this stuff out on my own with, with people that are better at it than I am. And I'm reading everything from white privilege to, I mean, I'm, I'm going all across the, the board because I, I really... <laughs> I want to be educated, not just be, you know, the old white guy that doesn't get it. I mean, yes. I, I really want to attempt to understand. And I've been supporting, you know, third, fourth ward organization for 30 or 40 years, but I haven't really known, I haven't really understood in my gut yes. their experience. Yes, yes. And, and I don't think I'll be able to, but, I, but I, can, I can move from where I am now to someplace else. Yeah, and such a politicized topic as well, because a lot of the scientific sampling is, has so much bias in it for both the right side and the left side. Yeah, I, I just don't think either side gets no, it right. No, There's a There is a magazine called Chronicles. It's a paleoconservative magazine, and there was an article in this most recent uh, episode or edition that talked about the left and the, and the right. Uh, I mentioned we might go on some tangents. Let's go on, let's go on a tangent here. Uh, so you've got uh, the, the, the left perspective um, that essentially says that the skin color is what dictates right. it and we're, we are in a white supremacist led uh, right. country and, and work is very demeaning towards certain people of certain skin tones. Then the right side, now that, that also takes, takes away the agency from both the black person because the black person can't lift themselves up, it also takes away the agency because it assumes all white people are white supremacists. Right. I've never met someone that really wants to be a white supremacist. Then on the right side, you have this concept that it's all biological. There's so much inbreeding. Blacks tend to marry blacks, whites tend to marry whites, Asian Americans who outperform all of us. A lot of the times they, they marry each other. And so, and so biologically, they tend to stay in the same subgroups decade after decade, which also takes away the agency from both the whites and the blacks. And it's a racist type of, type of concept. So the gentleman that wrote this article in, in Chronicles said that there's a middle position. And, and what you said about the, about the scale has me thinking about this. There's a middle position there that says it's, it's based off of action. And what he cites is Ron Haskins, who did a study, and he came up with something called the success sequence that said, if you do these three things, regardless of race, you have a 98% chance of not living in poverty. Number one, you graduate high school. Number two, you get married, then have kids. And number three, you work a full-time job, any full-time job, burger flipper, janitor, CEO, no matter what it is, you do those three things, 98% probability that you will not live in poverty. And so it's, it's action-based. And so that's what I like about that, that middle thing on the, on, the, on the scale, that it gives full agency to everyone, not based off of their skin color, but just the principle that they are a human being with their own agency. And the challenge is, based upon your environment and where you 
brought up, what's the likelihood you're gonna graduate high school? Or based upon your family situation, did you come from a you know, husband and wife that were together or not? So there are all these right. environmental factors that, uh, that color that entire situation that is, uh, has everything to do with where, where you were born. Yes. Not your own abilities. And so that, that's the reason I'm so drawn yes. to, to attempting uh, to help put people in a position of equal ability to thrive. That's right. And you know, like you said, it's, it's the home environment has a big, huge, huge impact of it. I think that I read at 82% probability of living outside of, uh, or above the poverty level if you have both a father and a mother in the household. Right. Huge. It's, it's huge. Yeah. And the kid doesn't have anything to do with that. Oh, not at all. So that's the reason it's so complex. Yes. That, that's what I'm trying to uh, not just learn, but figure out how to most effectively help uh, people up the ladder. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, or give them something to set the ladder on. That's right, that's right. And you wonder if these trillions and trillions of dollars that have been thrown at this problem over the last now 60 years have really had that much of an impact. Yeah, and clearly they haven't. Yes. The, the results are not where we'd hoped that they, that they would be. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think we're making progress. I mean, if... It's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's Bill, Bill Gates, if you see, see the numbers around, around the world, I mean, the world is making progress. We have a lot fewer people in poverty today than we had 20 years ago, than we had 20 years before that. So I'm, I'm an optimist, kind of like he is, that, that, that we're making progress. Certainly, certainly. You are someone who's taking resources out of the private market and deploying them in other, other areas, social, charitable, why, why do that when you can leave the money in the for-profit market and, and be able to get additional yields on that capital to deploy le later in charitable efforts? Well, it, uh, to, to me, maybe a corollary, and, okay. and maybe a better question, would be is, uh, what's your end goal? Okay, if your end goal is to make the most money, then maybe you, you leave it in the private markets, but at some point, you're gonna die. And so great, I'm gonna have a bigger pile when I die. Yeah. Or nicer suits, <laughs> I could do that. Um, so, so what's the end goal? And so what, what happened to me when I was in my 40s, and I looked at kind of where I was, and I, again, we were kind of back, and I was making money. I took, and assuming some company growth in where I was, where would I be by the time I was 50 or 60 or 70? And I already had enough, you know, we all got to find what's enough. And so I was kind of losing motivation of working for money because I, I didn't, I wasn't as money motivated as I thought I was. I was till I got, you know, a certain standard, but then it was kind of, where's the so what? Yes. And so to me, when I decided to give half away and I was earning money for God and for the kingdom and for nonprofits, then I got really motivated again. And that's when we grew from 350 million to you know, almost three, three billion. So, because now, now, now there's a purpose to it. Yeah. And it's not just about me, it's about what I can do out there. So I'm out there competing like crazy, right? I satisfy my own needs relatively early. I don't wanna say easily, but I mean, so it, it kind of depends upon what's enough and if you move that a couple times, as I did, <laughs> and then deciding, okay, if you get that, then where's the so what? I mean, what's the so what of our lives? Yeah. I mean, and so 
to me, that fundamental answer is what you've got to, you got to answer to go get, it helped me get other focused. Yes, yes. Right, there's an idea there that there's a why to your life, there's a purpose to your life, there's an ought, What's, what should you be doing, what ought you be doing? And for certain people, they don't recognize that purpose, that ought, that why to their lives. What, what, are your, what, what would you say to those people who don't recognize that maybe there's a, there's a bigger goal for their lives other than just living it for myself? Well, for me, it's faith in something big, bigger than myself. If I didn't have faith, I'm not sure I would understand that there was something beyond myself. If you don't think there's something beyond yourself, it's hard to kind of make that, make that move. So, so to me, it's very much uh, faith-based. And, you know, my wife and I had a mountaintop experience at, at Young Life when we were in high school, and I've fallen off and fallen on, and, you know, I've, it's been a rocky journey as it is for most people. Uh, but I've kind of moved from cultural Christian to more committed Christian in my mid-40s when I kind of made these moves yeah. and uh, started hanging out with different people, started having different goals, started having, you know, there's only so much partying you, you can do, so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I really do think it's, are you hanging out with folks and spending time with people that, that have goals bigger and beyond the ball game or this or going to Vegas or doing whatever they're, they're doing. Yes. And I've found a lot more joy on this side than I ever did on that side because that side comes and goes. Yes. So Luke 12, 34 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Randy Arcorn, as I'm sure you've, you've read, says that you can put your treasure somewhere and your heart will follow it. The, the heart is led by the treasure. Do you, do you see that in your, in your own life? Where you, when you've given treasure away, that your hearts follow that. Have you have you cared about those sorts of things that you that you fund more and more because you put treasure there? To to, to me, that the treasure is a means, not an end. Okay. So uh, I'm not sure that my heart follows my treasure. Uh, I put it backwards, say my treasure should follow my heart. So if my heart's involved in others, and that's where I need to invest. If my heart's involved in what's best in for me or the nicest car, the nicest this, then that's where I ought to invest. So um, to me, money has no good or bad. It, it's, it's a tool. And, and uh, if you're fortunate enough to, to have been given skills to have the use of that tool, for others, it's compassion of their own ability. Mm -hmm. For others, it's a doctor, I can do this. For others, mine happens to be in business and happen. And, and, and money is what is the tool of the trade. Uh, the, the question is where you invest it and what, it, it, what brings you the ultimate joy. And it's hard to imagine, you know, a different car, even house, even, you know, airplane, whatever, would bring you the same joy as when you go and you see the orphanage that you help support or the school that you help build or the folks that, that you help, you know, graduate from high school or whatever the, the situation is. Certainly, certainly. Well, I want to wrap up our time together by asking you one final question. A hundred years from now, what do you most want to be known for? I doubt if I'll be known a hundred years from now. So that's, <laughs> I mean, I don't take myself that seriously. 
So, somebody asked me what, what I want, what I'd want on my tombstone, right? Yeah. And uh, it was you know, he made God smile, wow. and uh, sometimes he'd be guffawing at how stupid I was on trying to do this. He'd smile, say, yeah, I'm "Doing pretty good today," or <laughs> "It's been a good day or a bad day or whatever." But but uh, I I can just see God sitting back saying, "He tried." He did the he, he did the best he could. <laughs> he, he worked he worked with with what I gave him, and uh, and and you know, good job, good and faithful servant would be what I would hope uh, that that I would I would be known for a uh, hundred years from now. But I doubt if I'll be known a hundred years from now. I don't think that's going to be anything that that the next generation will work at. What I hope is that is that uh, the folks who I've helped get through school that their kids will live a better life than they would have otherwise and that their kids will live, live, live a better life or the economic folks I helped in Africa that, that get a job or have savings or get have health care so they survived their, their that, so the children actually survived mm-hmm. uh, up till five years old. I mean there are all kinds of different things but I don't think I'll be known. I, I, I think that uh, hopefully the world will be just a little bit better place because of some, some of what I've been able to do. Love that. Love that. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate Thank you. It. Appreciate it. Thanks.